Welcome to Spies of London. This episode is a book review of The Illegal by Gordon Carrera from the BBC, The Hunt for a Russian Spy in Postwar London, and it's about the spy Gordon Lonsdale. Gordon Lonsdale was a Canadian man who came to Britain by ship. He told everyone he had been born on the 27th of August 1924 in Ontario, Canada. In reality, he was Conan Melody, born in Moscow. Now I've come across Gordon Lonsdale many times. He was easily one of the best and most professional Russian spies operating in Britain at any time. He was known to me because he was involved in a prisoner swap without wanting to give you too many spoilers. Uh, So he was highly valued by the KGB and he met George Blake in Moscow. And George Blake and Gordon Lonsdale were betrayed by the same source. Some people suggest that if they hadn't been betrayed, particularly Lonsdale might never have been discovered. By the time he was discovered, clearly his super deep secret undercover work, which involved him taking on this Canadian identity, living in Britain, away from his young family, was taking its toll. And more than that, as with so many of the British traitors, when Lonsdale got back to Moscow, he started to compare it to what he'd seen in the West and realized that the West was better. Uh, It was richer, more exciting, more interesting, more dynamic, more fun, and he had serious alcohol problems. But there were a few details about Lonsdale which intrigued me, and I have to say, I thought Gordon Lonsdale was a made-up name. It's not quite true. I thought it was a little bit like Douglas Adams when describing the alien Ford Prefect. He had researched Earth and discovered that Ford Prefects were in such wide use that the name Ford Prefect would be an inconspicuous name for a human. Younger listeners, including me, might not know that the Ford Prefect was a car. So Gordon Lonsdale, to me, sounded like a sports bag. But in fact, Gordon Lonsdale was a real name, a real person of a young boy who had, a Canadian boy who had gone to Russia and died there. And so Gordon Lonsdale, Melody, took up that identity. It's not too easy to fake up a few dates and things and, and make it look like you are the person who's died. A lot of intelligence agencies in the past have used this technique. I find it a bit creepy because the people who die always seem to be very young, quite often children, even babies. And to me, I don't know, they would see it as a a kind of form of warfare and it's all in the cause and everything. But stealing the identity of a dead baby just seems bizarre. Anyway, Gordon Lonsdale was not a baby, but he did die in Russia and his identity was therefore for taking and the KGB took it and assigned it to Melody. Once he was trained up, he'd been in the Red Army, he'd gone to school in America, he had this kind of international background, he sailed to New York on an ocean liner and became a spy. As with all good spies, they all had several names. He met a man on a bench in Central Park who introduced himself as Emil Goldfuss. He was really William Fisher, but better known as Rudolf Abel. He had been born in Newcastle, England in 1903, but to Russian parents. So the thing about communism, Cold War spying, post-war spying, and indeed the moles of the 30s, the Kim Philbys and so on, they were often driven by ideology. And I've mentioned this several times on the walks and in the podcast, that it is difficult to put ourselves into the mindset of the 30s and 40s in Europe. War was inevitable. Sides had to be chosen, and some people chose the victorious side, and some people chose the other side. That's always happening. 
But for some reason, the echoes and the ripples from that time still live with us today. It is very obvious for us to see that communism has its limitations, that it's economically bankrupt, ideologically bankrupt. It works on a Ponzi scheme at the centre where a few get rich and the masses, the millions and millions of normal people get manipulated and lied to. Now that may be a very brief overview of communism, but it's a pretty accurate one. Not to say capitalism isn't without its faults, but it at least tries or strives to be meritocratic and fair. That's a different conversation to say that it might not always work like that. But getting rich is part of the lure of capitalism, whereas in communism it's it's described as a kind of a failing or an evil, unless you're one of the elite, of course, in which case it's strongly encouraged. Communism has at its heart a, a deep cynicism and a double life. And from a distance, from England, from France and Germany, even from Canada and America, if you read the textbooks about communism, you think, well, okay, everybody has a job, everybody's looked after, everybody has a home, there's no homeless people, everybody's fed, nobody's hungry. It, it kind of looks great at a time when people were hungry in Britain, they were starving in the 30s in America. This kind of notion of a society which could be organised, in which everybody got along and was nice to each other and looked out for each other and helped each other, and there were no rich people and there were no poor people, People and everybody was middle class. These were powerful ideas for, first of all, upper middle class people who never had to work and never needed to, but also for anybody, working classes, anybody would be attracted to that once they saw the poverty in Western Europe. It's completely understandable to me that intelligent people in huge numbers thought that communism was a good idea. You have Kim Philby, you have George Blake, you have Melody or Lonsdale, all on different sides, different nationalities, different backgrounds, but all agreeing with each other that communism was better than fascism and that it had to be one or the other. There was no middle way. You were either a communist of the left or a fascist of the right and everybody hated the fascists. Therefore, anybody with a rational, logical mind would become a communist. So that kind of thinking has led me to soften my opinions of Philby and the rest. In particular, the episodes about Guy Burgess and the walking special episodes as well. But I will be coming back to this with the Donald MacLean book too. Alan Bennett has helped to persuade me that the spies were not the traitors that people like to think. He wrote at least two plays about spies, possibly more, one of them in particular about Guy Burgess. And he is of the view that they were no worse than the rest of them and that they weren't half as bad as people make out. Lonsdale originally entered Canada using the identity of a live double, that is a living Canadian communist who had volunteered his passport for the cause, and then later on became this dead double, Gordon Lonsdale, a child born in Canada in 1924, who had emigrated to the Soviet Union with his Finnish mother and died there in 1943. Melody first got hold of an identity card, which is easier to get than a passport, and then that led on later to a passport of Canada. He then writes to SOAS, the, the Chinese school at the University of London, gets on a course there and somebody recommends to him he should join the Royal Overseas League in St. James's or near St. James's, which is interesting to me because I nearly joined that once because they have a deal with the London Library. They do have clubs all around the world and it strikes me as a very obvious place for a spy to arrive at because you can live there in an international community where not many questions will be asked. Melody returned from Canada to New York, crossing over Niagara Falls as Gordon at Lonsdale in February 1955 and made his way to London. Now, this is a book review in the style of the London Review of Books, so we don't really mention the book very much. It is a Kindle single. It's only 60 or 70 pages. It'll cost you about 80 pence, about a dollar, and it's fabulous. Definitely recommended. It's clean, it's short, it's factual. It's done by a pro. You can read it in about an hour, but it's just amazing. It's really good. 
There's a guy uh, in Britain, the one who eventually led to his downfall, was Harry Horton. Horton joined the Navy at 16, and after the Second World War took a position at the Admiralty. That led him to a posting in Warsaw in 1951, by now in his mid-40s. They felt out of place in the diplomatic community, and Horton dealt in the black market selling penicillin. It seems to be money that drove him to approach a secretary of the Polish Minister of Foreign Affairs in Warsaw. So Horton was in it for the money, not for ideology, which immediately put him down the ladder in Lonsdale's eyes and indeed in many other people's eyes too. He was British, but he betrayed his country for cash. But nevertheless, his wartime service and background eventually led him to a really top secret job. The KGB were not sure that he could be bought, so they pretended to be from Poland and said, look, we're Polish spies, want to work for us. And it was only later that they admitted that they were actually the KGB. But by this time, Horton had a job at the underwater weapons establishment at Portland in Dorset, and he had absolutely white-hot connections there. So he was working on, with his girlfriend, the sonar for Britain's first nuclear submarine, the Dreadnought. Absolutely prime information. KGB had a few problems with him, he was difficult to manage, and they eventually assigned him to Gordon Lonsdale, who ran him for, I think, a number of years, certainly quite a while. It was the 11th of July 1959 when Horton was first introduced to Lonsdale. Both men had completely opposite opinions of each other. Lonsdale hated Horton, and Horton thought they were kind of friends. Now, no story about spies in Britain during this period of time would be complete without mentioning Peter Wright, the spycatcher, and in fact, the writer of the book called Spycatcher. And this seems to be a common theme that Peter Wright wrote his book to make money because his MI5 pension was so bad. There is somebody in this story who had to go into business in retirement because his MI5 pension was so bad. It makes you wonder whether MI5 would have done better just to give them all a proper pension, to be honest. Especially at that time, as public sector pensions were supposed to be generous. Anyway, that's just my sniping. And indeed, the man who eventually betrayed Lonsdale and George Blake was given the codename Sniper. This was late April 1960, and someone had been sending anonymous letters to the CIA written in German... So the agent Sniper claimed that the Russians have two very important spies in Britain, one in British intelligence, the other in the Navy. These two unknowns were codenamed Lombarda 1 and Lombarda 2. And this was during the aftermath of the Philby scandals. British intelligence was certain they had no mole, but he'd later turned out to be George Blake. It was the Navy one that worried people because they didn't know who it could be. This was Horton, remember, and the claim was that the name sounded something like Hopkner or Hopner, which is very far away in spelling and sound. But the case was eventually handed to a guy called Charles Elwell. It was later found that Elwell was in one of the photographs found in one of Lonsdale's briefcases. So in other words, he had unwittingly, or was he, at a party with Lonsdale before Lonsdale was suspected. And in fact, Elwell became suspected as well by Peter Wright and others. And part of the handling of this led Peter Wright to suspect Hollis, the head of MI5, who I've also mentioned in a previous episode. This is absolutely why I start to think that human intelligence, this kind of agency work, is never good news. It leads everybody to a state of febrile paranoia on both sides of the table. MI5, who are trying to catch these moles, become even more paranoid than everybody else and start seeing moles everywhere. And the whole thing, every 10 or 20 years, degenerates into this kind of 
paranoid meltdown, which in any other business or walk of life would be seen as absolutely potty. And it's seen as absolutely normal when it's upper middle class people with degrees talking about Marxism. And I think this kind of amateurishness, which went on in the security services, certainly through to the late 80s and the fall of the Berlin Wall, was partly what the 1994 Intelligence Act was trying to address, was to try to say, look, if this thing is so secret that nobody officially knows about it, how do we know we're doing the right thing in the right way, in the most efficient way? It's costing hundreds of millions of pounds a year to run these agents and to catch the foreign agents. And all we end up doing is eyeing up each other. Now, again, that's a simplification, but sometimes you have to simplify in order to illustrate the point. So on we go. Horton starts to meet Lonsdale in London and hand over paperwork and so on. And they train each other up, or rather Lonsdale trains up Horton to take good photographs using spy cameras and other equipment. And later on, some of the briefcases that are stolen by MI5 or apprehended by MI5 contain all this amazing 1960s spy equipment. And I have to say that 1960s spy equipment is way more exciting than modern technology because everything had its specific purpose. You wouldn't have a phone that could take pictures, you know, that everybody had. You know, there were specialist cameras, miniaturized cameras, which the mere possession of such a device would cast suspicion on you. First of all, they were very expensive to make, difficult to get hold of. And why would any normal person have a spy camera? Because they take bad photos. Whereas now everybody's got a spy camera in their pocket that's a thousand times better than what the KGB could make in the 60s. So the times have changed, the technology has changed, and I think there's something really romantic and exotic about this old technology. Thinking about the umbrella on the bridge again, of course. So, on we go. The Watchers, they were surveilled. Uh, Horton was followed to a bench outside the old Vic, where he met Lonsdale. And when the MI5 guys followed Lonsdale after the meeting, they realised he walked around in circles for a long time before going back to his car, which had already previously passed in the street. This is spy tradecraft. This is not something that a normal person would do. So the finger of suspicion went to Lonsdale. As with all spy operations, they didn't just arrest him because what they really wanted was to find out who he knew and what he was doing. He had a flat at the White House near Regent's Park, flat 334. He had a bungalow in Ryslip. And this bungalow in Ryslip turns out to be pretty important, not least to me, because I used to live near here, and I can imagine exactly where this bungalow is. You can get the book if you want to know the exact address, but it's precisely positioned between Ryslip Station and Ryslip Gardens at the end of a road, and the the cul-de-sac leads into a footpath that's not wide enough for a car to go down. This means that you can approach or leave the cottage being sure that you're not being followed, because obviously if you were followed by a pedestrian, you could spot them straight away, and you certainly couldn't be followed by a car, it's down a footpath. Even better, Ryslip Gardens is across the road from Northolt, the RAF base, which is actually the base where Lonsdale was exfiltrated from when he was involved in a prisoner swap many years later. The location is fabulous. It was owned by two Russians. Again, they'd lied about their backgrounds and so on and passed themselves off as other people. Russian book dealers. Lonsdale lived with them for many months, And in fact, MI5 lost track of him in London and it took them a while to catch him in Ryslip. And after he had been arrested and jailed, the people in the house were also arrested and jailed as well for helping him. And because Lonsdale was the prize asset, he was sprung out of jail by the KGB in a prisoner swap with Greville Wynne, another famous spy. All the people he'd helped and worked with, the Hortons, uh, the Russians in the Ryslip bungalow, stayed in jail for many more years. And Lonsdale only got 25 years, whereas... Famously, George Blake got, I think it was 42. It was so long that Blake escaped 
Lonsdale didn't even need to escape because he was sprung out by a prisoner swap. The whole thing is a who's who of spies and spy catchers. Peter Wright's here. Roger Hollis is here. Lonsdale's here. Blake's here. Philby's here. And really, none of them suspected Gordon Lonsdale. If it wasn't for that Polish tip-off and Horton's amateurism, he, he might never have been caught. It's easy to say that. If this hadn't happened, then that would never have happened. People say that all the time. But Lonsdale was such a professional, and he'd grown to like his lifestyle in the West, as we later find, which is crucial for me. I think if you hate the West and you hate capitalism and you hate all of that, it's easy to stay loyal to communism. But having lived in America, lived in Canada, lived in Britain, he got a taste for the lifestyle. And although he remained loyal to Russia until the end, when his allegiance was tested, to say the very least, and he may even have been killed in a poisoning, which if you've heard my Navalny episode, you will realise is still going on, Lonsdale retained his allegiance to Russia until the, towards the end, but he did enjoy the West. And I think he might never have been caught were it not for the tip-off. Wright became paranoid, started to suspect Roger Hollis, everybody else. He suspected anybody who wasn't him, basically. And indeed, his spycatcher book has largely been discredited. But they eventually traced Lonsdale to Ryslip. They investigated the owners of the bungalow, found a communist past, and Lonsdale was caught and given 25 years. This book is a great lunchtime read. It'll take you about an hour or 90 minutes if you're a slow reader. It's virtually free. It's less than a pound on Amazon. It's a Kindle single. Gordon Carrera from the BBC is the writer, and he's a very professional journalist. He's used all the usual sources, the Mitrokin Archive, Christopher Andrew, and so on, Nigel West. A lot of this was already known, but what I like about this book is its shortness and the way it just sticks to the facts and really clearly describes a time and a place in Western European history. So that's Gordon Lonsdale, not a sports bag, but a dead Russian boy who had his identity stolen and used for espionage. Gordon Lonsdale died in suspicious circumstances after drinking vodka. He might have had a stroke. His father died young, equally well. He might have been poisoned. So on that bombshell, I leave you for another week. We have lots coming up in the podcast. We have Donald McLean. We have a few John le Carre things lined up for you. And I want to dig deeper into some of the locations on the spy walks as well. The original episodes were done in 15 minute chunks to help you out, keep it short. One thing I've realized that the podcast allows is a walk, a virtual walk, where the locations are further apart. So spies of the home counties might be coming soon to take in John le Carre's childhood home and the home he lived in Great Missenden as a professional man working for MI5 and MI6. And of course, the Ricelip bungalow lived in by Gordon Lonsdale. So that's spies of the home counties. I will also revisit some of the London spy walks as well. We have a very, very full autumn for you as the weather and the leaves turn. Spies of London will return next week. 